Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's our most populous and diverse city and wants to be the world's most livable city. But housing, infrastructure and governance are all under pressure. And what does that diversity mean for Auckland's residents? What is the future of Tamaki Makoto? I'm Megan Whelan and this is Great Ideas. Last season we looked at the revolutionary ideas of the past. This time round we're asking what the great ideas of the future will be. We'll look at leisure and families and work. This week though, the future of Auckland. I'm joined by three knowledgeable people from AUT and I've asked them to tell us their favourite place in Auckland. Uh, Kia ora tato. Uh, I'm Kylie Quince. I'm Senior Lecturer at, at the School of Law at AUT. My favourite place in Auckland, Puketapapa, Mount Roskill, that's my hood. Uh, my name's John Tukey, I'm Professor of Construction at AUT. Uh, my favourite place is not actually in Auckland City, it's uh, the Halatau Brew Bar out in West Auckland and it's very good beer. Hi, kia ora, my name's Kath Conn, I'm Senior Lecturer in Public Health. Uh, my favourite place has to be Long Bay Beach, which is gorgeous, and the surrounding area where I walk often at weekends. Excellent. So... In preparing for these podcasts, I did lots of research and I read lots of things and I watched videos on the internet and I came to Auckland and despite the fact that in some of them we're talking about the future of work and the future of play, this felt like the biggest one. This felt like the most complicated one. Why is Auckland so complicated, Kylie? Why is Auckland complicated? Mm. Because it's big, because it's diverse, because it's an isthmus. You know, we we literally strand Tumwana. Um, you know, it's home to tangata whenua, to migrants. It's a huge place with huge aspirations. It's a food basket. Um, it's the economic capital of New Zealand. You know, it, it, it serves a lot of purposes for, you know, a good chunk of our country. Let's start with, John, why should the rest of New Zealand care what happens in Auckland? Um, we have the potential to be both a uh, principal driver of the economy but also a, p- a principal bomb under the economy. Uh, the reason being that we currently sit in a, um, a housing crisis, and I use that word advisedly, where we're sitting with mean household income sitting at around about $77,000 a year. Um, we're sitting on... How- or- Auckland house prices sitting on something just in excess of $900,000 per house for poor quality, um, unaffordable, cold, drafty, wet houses. Um, And we have the potential to uh, have a bubble that deflates in a hell of a rush if we're not very careful. And that will affect everybody in the country, come what may. And getting everything, it's not even just that stuff, although we'll come back to housing very, very quickly because you can't afford it. Uh, But... 
if, if, if stuff can't move around Auckland, the rest of the country is affected. If people can't buy things in Auckland, the, the rest of the country is affected. Kath, if, if the health of the people in Auckland is bad, the rest of the country is affected. Sure. I mean, uh, we have a large population in Auckland and we have great inequity between different parts of Auckland. You've got some fantastic areas, but they're high-income communities. And uh, what we need to see is raising the bar so that those areas where low-income communities live have a different kind of lifestyle. And what we're seeing is some very livable areas and then other areas which lack that livability. And so how can we look at both of those and say, look, hang on, this is not good enough? So housing... It seems to be the biggest issue. It seems like every day there is a story about housing in Auckland. Uh, The average cost of a house in the Auckland region has increased by 110% since 2008, while the average weekly take-home pay has gone up by 23%, so five times uh, the rate of increase for housing to pay. The poorest 20% of people, a quarter of them, are spending 50% of their income on housing. (sighs) John, this is a huge question. How do we fix this? Solve it, John. Solve it. Yeah, no no pressure. No pressure. Um, The problem at the moment is we have a complete mismatch between our ability as a society, as an industry, to deliver the housing needs that we have uh, and our expectations. So on the one hand, in terms of delivery, we are currently consenting 10,000 homes a year, delivering 7,200 or so homes a year. This is after eight years of growth since the end of the global financial crisis, 2008. So as we sit here now, um, we've ramped up over a period of time and we've got, we, we're hitting this peak, peak of 7,200. We need, according to, the, um, to the, uh, the, the, the housing plan, something like fourteen to 15,000 and that's actually going up per year. So in effect, what we've got is a situation where we have a finite capacity of the industry. Uh, we've got the need for double the, the needs in terms of, uh, or double the delivery rather, in terms of uh, total number of houses uh, built against a background where the industry itself has got flatline or declining productivity. So we're presented with a simple binary solution set. We either double the size of the workforce or double the productivity of the industry. Either either or some spe- somewhere in the spectrum in between is what we've got to achieve. And at the moment, we're not, as an industry or as a society, investing in that in any meaningful way. Because that sounds, take... my first thought was, that sounds expensive. It, it is expensive. <laughs> but again, you know, you t- what you're talking about, the reason why housing is emotive is because it has a, ha- a massive... Um, a social dimension associated with housing. Fine, get that. Uh, the issue is not that per se. It's the fact that we as a society are expecting um, commercial entities, construction companies, to step up and build affordable homes. The reality check is this. When we talk about affordable homes, we're not talking about affordable to the builder. We're talking about affordable for the purchaser. The builder will build a 150-square-metre home and it'll cost him $3,400 or so. Uh, per square meter, if he builds a two hundred uh, sorry two hundred and fifty square meter home, it will probably cost about two thousand dollars a square with a lot bigger margin on the other end. So what would impel a builder to to build small homes that are affordable to the end user? Not much. Okay, that's a that is not a point I've heard before. So basically, it is in the interests of the construction companies to keep building to keep the quarter acre dream alive. It's not about the quarter acre dream. It's about the biggest possible house you the, can see. The McMansion. On, on, well, it's a McMansion sitting on a, a relatively small block. The, the logic is actually very, very simple to explain. I recently wrote a report called The Mess We're In, and it's worth having a look at. Though I know it sounds like self-promotion, but it is actually all in there. And basically the logic is this. If I increase the size or the side of a, of a home, so I, I increase the linear dimensions, 
the, the cost goes up in a linear way. But the floor area goes up in a square function and the volume, the apparent size of the place, goes up in a cube function. So by making places bigger, I lock in a lot more value very, very quickly. If I'm procuring a house, if I'm building a house, I'm, I work to a, a budget that I have in my head, but what, what, are my, what are my motivations? My motivations are always going to be the same, which is the biggest possible house that I can, I can build for, the, for the, uh, the quantum of cash I've got in my pocket. So at every stage... We're always building bigger and bigger. The statistics are really interesting. If you go to the census document of 2013 for Auckland, there's actually a it's really complete analysis. His, over the last uh, almost 20 years, we've seen our two- and three-bedroom homes, which are always the affordable bracket of, uh, of the market, as a proportion of total population of homes declining year on year. Two- and three-bedroom homes are going down as a proportion of the total volume of dwellings. At the same time, over, the, over that same period of time, the proportion of four, five and six bedroom homes is all going up. And yet the average size of a household, the average number of people in the it's house going is going down at the same time. Oh, the logic. <laughs> oh, the joy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Kath, do you, do you think we need to, or do you think we already have given up on that uh, quarter acre dream house in the suburbs, nice to family dog and a dog and a car. Do you think we need to give that up? Um, I, I think we just need to think differently. I mean, we, we've got so, such a diverse population and the idea that uh, the, the sort of nuclear family still exists is, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't um, you know, it, it's not relevant. We discussed this at length in the Future of Families episode and we agreed, came to the agreement that it does not exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so so how do we make housing for the families that do exist now? Well, it does seem from the discussion that we're having here that um, something has to be done outside the commercial sector and we always avoid talking about regulation and policy. But inevitably, it's incredibly important, um, both local uh, local level policy, but also national level. And um, one of the things we're we're really skirting around is the fact that um, Auckland is growing, and that is a that's a global trend. Urbanisation is here to stay, and we're talking over the next twenty to thirty years about Auckland growing. As are many other cities, they're becoming more complex, um, they're more challenging. So it, it's not enough to say, well, the commercial sector can deal with this, or communities. And we put a lot of emphasis on individuals and communities to look after themselves as kind of a strong individual responsibility message, um, rather than a sort of more societal one. But we can see that that kind of individual responsibility responsibility approach doesn't really work. Um, if you look at all the research, we realise that putting individual responsibility on low-income uh, low income communities to sort out their housing problem or to improve their eating or to take more exercise, um, it, it, it hasn't worked. And we've tried that. Rather, we need to look at the wider picture and say, look, um, you know, we need... Uh, environments where there's walkability, where there's cyclability. We don't want food deserts. We don't want areas where you've got very poor food choices. And we know that in parts of Auckland, you cannot uh, walk out of your door and see outlets which have good food choices in terms of fresh food. Um, we, you know, surrounded by takeaway uh, outlets. So there's something around recognising all those problems and 
uh, the public sector, the private sector and communities working together. Kylie, you've been sitting there very politely. <laughs> Just very unlike me, if you were to know. If only you were to know. <laughs> Nodding on. One of the fascinating things, I, uh, the facts I discovered this week, is that Auckland has a higher percentage of the country's population than almost anywhere else in the world. So mm-hmm. our biggest city has more people in it, more proportionally more people in it than uh, anywhere other than, I think it's us in Dublin. So um, we're about, Auckland is about a third of the population. London, New York, all those, Paris, all those big cities are around about 20%. That's a huge amount of the country in one place and in one place that is really hard to get around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer to that. Yes. Yes, 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 it is. I mean, I don't know that I'm I'm not terribly wedded to the idea of, of home ownership anymore, I don't think. And I, I say that from the privileged position of being a relatively recent homeowner, and when I say owner, I mean person with huge, huge mortgage, yeah. that I am now pretty much committed to not paying off and, and I'm not particularly concerned about it. But I am concerned about people living in healthy and healthy homes, safe, dry. Whether or not they own them or not is, is not particularly um, concerning to me. But, but, but I want to talk about the fact that um, one of the perhaps not necessarily intended consequences of, of maybe a social housing policy, which I am wedded to, um, is the idea of moving away from, in terms of talking about Auckland as a um, super diverse country, uh, country, I think of it as a country, we're a whole jurisdiction, um, as a super diverse city where we're very soon also going to be one of the very few cities in the world, big cities in the world, where more than 50% of the people are born elsewhere. Um, and one of the... It's potential 40% things now, so yeah, yeah, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, Professor Paul Spoonley and others have uh, researched on in terms of the diversification of communities through migration is the concept of um, ethnic precincts, which I am concerned about not in a uh, in a negative sense, but because of the potential loss of opportunity of of people living together, um, because of the fear of social distance from locational distance. That and that and that's why I said Pukitapa by my hood, you know, incredibly diverse community with a range of classes, incredibly ethnically diverse means we have the best takeaways in Auckland. Um, <laughs> but uh, it also means that my children have the benefit of being raised with people that do not look like us, that do not speak our languages. They they know lots more than I ever did at, at 12, 13 and 14 about Islam, about uh, communities from around the world. And so not just from uh, technology, but from physically spending every day, not just Pacifica, Matariki and Diwali, but spending every day with people from around the world uh, and people who parent, whose parents do very different things than their mums and dads do. And so that housing policy links to other social and cultural benefits um, if we mix together. Yeah, and, and but you're already seeing, I think, up here, pockets where there are only one ethnicity uh, in a, in a, in a neighbourhood, mm-hmm. um, it most certainly is the the case. But um, and we we you know we can all sort of point to the South Africans in mm-hmm. in um, up at uh, Browns Bay, for example, or something like this, which you know it just has almost become a cliche. But mm-hmm. uh, what actually what's quite interesting is some of the efforts that have been made to promote the the level of mixing that you come in. There 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 is there's arguments on both sides of this particular coin. Obviously, um, you know depending on to a certain degree, which side of the political spectrum you sit on and what have you. But, you know, irrespective of which, um, I, com- I commend uh, such developments as uh, I was recently up at um, uh, in Avondale at a project that's being run by um, uh, the Housing Foundation. 
absolutely outstanding, you know. And what they're doing is they're they're, they're developing a mix of stuff that's going to be sold privately, which is great. And it's the tradition. It's the not exactly the McMansions. That would be a little unfair. It's um, it's some very nicely designed houses, four bedroom homes, but they're also. Uh, within the same neighbourhood, they're developing a series of shared equity uh, buildings under the sort of the housing association model that they have in the UK, and it and it's great. It's a great outcome as a result, um, and the uh, the quality of the homes is excellent, and there you know there's a genuine level of affordability in there. Um, so it is happening, but um, the problem, unfortunately, if you leave it to the private sector in its entirety, that you do get monocultures taking place. And when you do that, you don't have. And looking at Auckland from outside, this is what it seems to be. There doesn't seem to be a connected approach to the city, that that something that's happening in South Auckland is very different to something that's happening on the shore. Uh, well, it is. And but... I think the, the other thing about that is that if you look at, from a, from a public health point of view, a lot of the good development has happened in and around the city centre. I mean, if you look at the sort of walkability that's been created around the Winard Quarter or along Queen Street and the discussions about the Sky Path, which are absolutely fantastic. And I don't know how much of that is um, brand Auckland, because the you know outsiders will see the city centre, but where are those developments happening around? There. Yeah, in the areas where people live, where where is that um, ability for kids to walk out of the house and not be um, choking on uh, congestion from traffic, you know, pollution, and instead having a place to walk where they they don't have that? If you look at the North Shore, it was built. Uh, the houses were built with uh, with no uh, pathways connecting them down to the beach, for instance. I mean, there's a few sections, but as someone who I take the bus all the time and I walk, there's very few opportunities for me to walk, which is not alongside the road. And a lot of those um, new sort of housing areas on the fringes, getting out, heading out towards rural Auckland, there's houses being built, but there's no roads being built. There's no pipes. So, so you know, there's John. You probably know a lot about this. There's space for the houses, but not the infrastructure for the houses to go there. So there's sixteen thousand houses a year, as well as actually the industry being able to build them. You also need the pipes to connect to them and the roads yeah, to I connect mean, to them. Uh, horizontal infrastructure is always extremely expensive. It's the reason why. Uh, um, you know, any city planner will tell you that they want to go high and they want to go condensed in order to minimise this sort of issue from a, from a, for a range of reasons, not least of which is the expense. Yes, yeah, there's no question about it. These external areas are um, have that problem, but the, the issue is actually not so much that it's the you know if you look at um, how politicians, particularly the, the current government, have been playing this, it's a, it's all about land. I mean, literally, the the refrain is always land, 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 and it's just not it's not necessarily the case, you know, because the, the, we're dealing with a massively complex issue. I mean, we've, we've talked about the various different elements of this massively complex issue, and it's actually a series of complex issues. It's not just a complex problem. It's a fiendish problem. You know, there's lots of layers to it, all of which are complex in their own right. As we sit and we look at how things are being developed, you know, question, why is housing unaffordable? Answer, because land is expensive. Why is land expensive? Um, Well, because it's developed and released onto the market at a rate that's designed to support the current selling price. That doesn't affect, that, that's not a positive effect on affordability at all. Even if you look at something like, for example, the, um, the, uh, the uh, Hobsonville Point, or sort of Hobsonville Land Company, which is a quango really in effect because it's you know, basically selling governmental land. Do they develop and release all the land in one blow? No, they don't. They actually release it out 
in order to maximise, or, or not necessarily maximise, but also in order to sustain land prices so they don't collapse it. So you've got this sort of situation where even the efforts to address the problem are not really addressing the problem. So, you know, we, we have this huge complex issue. There's no question about it. Horizontal infrastructure is going to be a major bone of contention for us. You try travelling from the west. I live in the west Auckland, in West Auckland, and I'm going even further west Auckland. And everything goes down one road. There's no plan B. Uh, you don't have the the options. And I mean, even on the uh, northwestern at the moment, following a massive upgrade that took years to put in place, there's no bus lane. Discuss. Yes, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you know, and that's the sort of piecemeal uh, yeah. approach, which ultimately is not going to so- get ahead of the problem because all we're doing is we're increasing infrastructure to a level where it should have been 30 yeah. years ago. Wow. Kylie, I want to go back to that point about governance and there seems to still be such a conflict between the local government here and central government. Is there a way to get them together, get them in a room and, you know, buy them a bottle of wine? That's a really good question and I I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, One thing that I think is, I mean, so we obviously need to rely upon central government to pay for major infrastructure. That's that's just a given. Um, And given the force of numbers of Auckland that we've already talked about, that's, again, a given. Um, So we should be due a a certain, um, you know, part of the putia of the fund purely because of the the, the um, extent of the population, but also because of the nature of the population. You know, not only, I mean, people always say that Auckland is the most, uh, is the biggest Polynesian city in, in the world. It's not, Honolulu is, but but it is still significant. More Polynesian people, um, you know, more um, in terms of percentage of the population, most Polynesian people in New Zealand, Māori and Pacifica people, live in Auckland. They are also the most marginalised. You look at the deprivation index indicators. Um, so more money needs to be spent on those. Populations in terms of their social, economic, cultural, and environmental uh, needs. Um, so th- those, that's how we need to be lobbying uh, central government. Is not just uh, there are more of us, but there are more of us with more complex and diverse needs um, in Tamaki Makoto than than elsewhere. John, the the figure that gets bandied around is that there needs to be twenty billion dollars spent on Auckland by twenty forty. The government has mostly said, "Well, that's up to you, Auckland Council." Is is that the way to is Kylie's argument the way to win the fight? Uh, maybe uh, it's uh, it, uh, coming down firmly on the fence at that point. Um, <laughs> it, it may be it may be the issue. I mean, without a doubt, the the city remains to be and will be for the foreseeable future the core of uh, economic activity as far as the the country is concerned. That's not going to go away. It's going to be the hub. It's going to be the the main draw for immigrants and and indeed Kiwis in the country. That's the, a lot of the transit is going in that direction for the same economic reasons. Um, do we need infrastructure spend? There's no question about that. And that's that's a given. You know, the fact that we're talking about a train link to the airport. Now, if you go to any air- airport anywhere in the world, you know, you've got multiple different mechanisms, instead of which it's maybe an $80 cab ride, if you want to go that way or a bus or whatever. And I, I have to be at the airport at six o'clock tonight. And I'm considering that I'm probably going to have to leave at four o'clock to get to the airport. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And if there's a car accident, I'll miss my flight. And there you go. And and thereby is the rub. You know, we're sitting here now, we're talking about, oh, maybe in the future, this $2 billion, which in the global sweep of things of of uh, infrastructure spend is relatively spe- speaking minor 
stuff. Um, maybe in another, what, 12 years, was it, or something like this, or 15 years? You know, actually, the infrastructure we, we need now, yeah, and it, but unfortunately, it's never going to work that way. You know, we, we sit here, and we're not getting ahead of the problem. All we're doing is is putting the sticking plaster over the, 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 the minor wound, as it were, and we're dealing with it, we're living with it, we're taking the concrete pill, metaphorically speaking, and, you know, push through. And that's where we sit at the moment. But uh, there's, there's stuff that's breaking. You know, if, as an example, if you look at the Harbour Bridge, OK, great. We've got the nip-on clip-ons and all that sort of stuff. We've expanded its life. We've extended its life. We talk every few years about the need for a second harbour crossing. It's going very quiet. You, know, you can hear the crickets in the distance. Um, nobody wants to commit to that. I mean, there are, there are, when it comes to large infrastructure projects, because they are multi-year they inevitably they become multi-government so you know what when you're dealing with a governmental cycle or an electoral cycle of three years in duration um it's very hard to commit yourself to the sort of infrastructure spend that might take an eight or ten or year type of uh, multi multi-jurisdictional type and to event. commit to paying for it because to Boom. pay for it you have to either get the government get, get the council more debt which Auckland council currently can't do or yeah. you need to raise rates which every mayor who's but, tried to do but, that not necessarily i mean it's this, because it's a national issue and because we could see in Auckland growing maybe doubling in size by about 2040 um, we really need to be much more ambitious in the way we capture wealth um, wealth is not distributed well in this country and there are many many uh, commentators now looking at 21st century wealth distribution mechanisms you know someone like Piketty the French economist has talked about global the, uh, the global need to to capture the wealth of uh, of the richest 10% of the population and it's the same for New Zealand just saying that you're going to increase rates for everybody is not the answer we've got to have something much more radical I think, sorry to interrupt, but I think that one of the things that really concerns me is when when we get the politicians going for a polemic of, well, let's build a new stadium. And this is one of those moments where you just go, seriously? We're sitting here, we're talking about the lack, you know, we need a new harbour crossing, we need, a, we need all these different things. We've got a, we've got a, a city a rail link that's just going to come online. When it comes online, it will be at peak capacity. It won't be able to cope with any more. So we're building infrastructure, major investment, that's maxed out. That's not future-proofing, you know? So we're in, we're in that situation, but we're quite happy to entertain the concept of a $1.2 billion crater that's built in the harbour, which even made me laugh. You know, I mean, why? Good grief. Kylie, you mentioned uh, complex and diverse needs. A lot of Auckland Māori and actually a lot of Auckland Pacifica people don't whakapapa to any of the local iwi. They don't have connections here locally. That's got to have something to do with those diverse needs. Hugely complicated um, web of relationships, but that, that's how we define who we are as Māori and Polynesian peoples, is, is by our relationships to one another. So a uh, very small percentage of Auckland Māori are tangata whenua, or any of the 19 tangata whenua um, rōpū or groups uh, of Auckland, which means the vast majority are like us, like myself, Todahiri, Manuhiri, uh, people from other places. So that means we have relationships with each other as Todahiri, relationships with the tangata whenua groups, relationships with central government and local government. Um, and so the the challenge for the governance structures of Auckland and of central government are to manage those relationships. And and I actually think they've done a pretty good job um, since the restructuring of the, of the super city with the legislation in 2010. Uh, 
the Independent Māori Statutory Board is coming into its own, it's released a pretty significant report on um, Māori and our aspirations for Auckland last year uh, and has done a really good job of um, articulating those complicated relationships in a way that uses Māori values. So looking at the social, economic, cultural and environmental needs of Māori using a Māori, tikanga Māori, kaupapa Māori framework of wairuatanga, of tanga, of manaakitanga. How do we look after one another? How do we host people from, um, as Māori, host people from other nations in Tāmaki Makoto? Um, so I, th- I think, you know, that, that's one really positive step of, of the, you know, the, the exponential growth of Auckland and its peoples is uh, I think we're heading in the right direction there. And I think that that's probably a good model for other um, other local and regional bodies. Other bodies are looking at, you know, having um, set council seats as they do in the Bay of Plenty. Um, but but I think that, that statutory board's doing a pretty good job. There's, there is a lot of people still falling through the cracks, though. Indeed. If there's one thing I could say about the, um, the board is the lack of diversity on the board, so there are nine statutory members. There is a balance between uh, mana whenua groups, so nine uh, nine members, seven and two, two Taurahiri members, but they're all uh, old men. Uh, there's one, sorry, one wahine, um, so poor gender representation, um, and they're all old, you know, and if there's one defining feature of the Māori and Pacifica populations of Auckland is that almost half of them are under 25. Um, so the youth voice in terms of how are we constructing these social economic and cultural environments and for who it needs to be for them. And, even, you know, as a 45-year-old, when I talk to my teenagers, they roll their eyes when I talk about what I think they might want, and I think I'm pretty cool. Uh, they they don't. <laughs> they, I'm sure they actually do. <laughs> I want to. I want to sum it up. Uh, sum this up. Um, we didn't get to any of the top, nearly any of the topics I talked about. I wrote on the notes, which I totally expected because as soon as you start talking about housing, you go down a. Um, mm-hmm. As what was the fiendish problem? You said, John, I like that. Mm. Um, how do we get people out of Auckland? So, if we want to manage the growth of the city and grow the regions, because some of our regions are really struggling. How do we get people out of the city? How do we encourage them to leave? Kath, I'm picking on you first. Um, I I feel that what's been missing to some extent from this uh, discussion is technology. Um, I mean, we're going to see some huge change uh, around the... um, the um, abilities of of technology, both in terms of the housing, but also in terms of things like employment. We're going to see massive restructuring of employment in Auckland. And um, it may be that with the internet of things and with the um, almost the return of manufacturing from the outsourcing to Asia, returning to rich countries on the basis that technology makes it possible to have a manufacturing industry and to have service industries which are outside the city. For me, technology has to be the way to, um, if you like, decentralise from from cities and for people to have communities that are very smart, technology-based communities outside Auckland. But it can't be going back... It can't be going back to the, to the past. It's about moving forward um, and, and using technology to do that. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, inevitably, we're going to have to think in terms of, um, of uh, investing in the types of technologies which allow remote working and so we don't actually have to physically shift hundreds of thousands of people into the city on a daily basis to sit in an office and then go home again. Um, so no question about it, that's going to be part of it. Um, 
there's uh, there's there's a wider issue though with regard to um, I'm going to weave in the housing once more, <laughs> which is we're going to have to redefine the nature of what. Uh, a quarter acre living experience is so it's quarter acre living in a quarter of the space so we're going to have to think smarter about how how to do that and as soon as you start getting to a point where you can develop uh, communities uh, and develop uh, housing and develop all the other infrastructure around those uh, which allow remote working which allow people to live in an area uh, with uh, with optimal uh, transportation infrastructure and so on uh, for, for them to be able to live effectively, then we'll, we'll do well. I mean, the, obviously, we increasingly we'll see things like, you know, you've got, we all use it, teleconferencing. Skype has become a staple of the business community. And that's what we do now, um, as well as delivery of certain things. So, you know, are we physically required to be present and so on? So we're going to have to take away um, aspects or rethink aspects of the presenteeism culture, where I, I was in my office, therefore I was working. You know, that is not the case. There will be increasing uh, amounts of uh, part-time work, for example, uh, remoted out and uh, in a piecework format. Why? Because, well, actually, part-timers are the most productive elements of any society, always, always. So there'll be a, there'll be a range of changes associated with how business will be done, how um, lectures will be given at a university, how everything else is going to happen as well. So no question about it, technology is where we go. And, uh, yeah, it will. it's going to happen. It has to. All I would add to that is if you want people to leave Auckland um, and go to the provinces, make them, um, give them season tickets to the Blues and the Warriors, they'll flee yeah. pretty quickly. Why are your sports teams <laughs> so bad? <coughs> oh, that was me. That was me. That was brutal. <laughs> I'm a day one Warriors supporter. <laughs> oh, you're the one. <laughs> I am the one. Yeah, I the am one. the one. Yes. My thanks to Professor Kath Conn, Kylie Quince and Professor John Tukey. Great Ideas is made in collaboration with AUT. Our sound engineer was Rangi Pawak and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find more great RNZ podcasts at rnz.co.nz on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.